because it gives us a perspective that we oftentimes lose. And it's the perspective of people, young people, who look upon the cross and upon Jesus and upon what he's done. And they look upon Easter and they understand it in some inexplicable way that causes our hearts to go. Easter is this amazing. You see, Easter is this wonderful, glorious time in which God shows up to rescue us from the horrors of death and sin. Easter is this glorious springtime in which we finally get to meet God and have a relationship with him that goes beyond just what I try to do and becomes who I simply am and who he is. As we meet together, we experience something special. And our spirit and our soul jumps up and down for joy. And that's called the change, the transformation. Yes. (laughs) There's my girl. She'd been here, baby. That's been happening all the last uh, couple of months here. We've been talking about the change that God wants to bring into our life. And we have to cry out and say, Lord, let the change begin. Peter does that today, and we're going to talk about Peter, we're going to talk about Saul, we're going to talk about Eric, we're going to talk about Lee. Now Why are you the... laughing? <laughs> ah, when I got to Eric, it's okay. Easter's the story of Jesus, and it's the story of each one of us as well. It's a story about how everything changes as a result of who God is and how he works in our lives. Now, everyone's got a story. I could have each of you come up here and share me your story. And at first you'd stumble, and then it'd start to come out, and pretty soon we'd find out some not-so-good things and some really good things. And the result of our communing together would be a recognition of who we are, sinners saved by grace, people who've come before God and met him, and he changed us, and he caused us to be something Different. John says it this way in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Yet to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The right to become children of God. The amazing thing as we look at the cross is that the cross for Christians becomes a completely changed symbol than what it was for all these people who lived during the time of the cross. It was, a, it was a symbol of death and horror, mm-hmm. of criminals and slaves, of a lack of mercy and literally terror over what the Romans could do to you. Yeah. And the Christians chained it into this wondrous declaration to all who responded to God would receive forgiveness of their sins because Jesus died on the cross so we could have life. That's why we call it Good Friday, not because it was a good day for Jesus, but because it was a great day for us. It was the day in which he washed my sins away, in which he took upon himself everything and finished all my debts so that I could have a relationship with God and speak to him freely and he would speak freely to me. That's what Easter is all about. Easter is stories of redemption and joy, of freedom from guilt and forgiveness of sin, of purpose and direction, of of values and families of hope, of wonder, of the glory of God. That's the story of Easter. And each one of us has to meet that story. 
You've got to come to meet Jesus just as I came to meet him. There comes a point in time in your life when you have a chance and a choice comes before you where you have an opportunity to respond to him or not to respond to him. Now today we're going to talk about two different men. The first one that I want to talk about is a man called Simon. You often know him as Peter. But Peter was not his name to begin with. Simon was a fisherman. And Simon was this impetuous dude. He was so impulsive and interactive, he would always say before he ever spoke. He would always just let it all out and didn't care what people thought or what people did. He would just simply make it happen. And that's the kind of guy that Peter was. Peter meets Jesus in a special way. Jesus comes up to him and says, Peter, can I borrow your boat? Simon the fisherman looks at him and thinks, why should I let you borrow my boat? But recognizing that perhaps he was a rabbi who had some pull, he better do what he needed to do. So he let him have his boat, pulls it out for a bit. Jesus stands in and begins to preach and tell the people about who he was and who God was. And Peter listens for the first time. And something happens inside of him. After the meeting is over, Jesus is done speaking. They've taken the offering. Okay? Everything's done. Everyone else is leaving. He turns to Peter and he says, Peter, how'd you do last night with the fishing? And Peter says, I was up all night, fished all night long, didn't catch a thing. He said, get back in the boat. Bring your net with you. So Peter gets back in the boat and brings his net. And he says, just go out here about oh, 30 feet. He goes out about 30 feet. Just drop your nets down right there. And he's going, look at Jesus. I'm a fisherman. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. You're just going to get my nets wet. They're going to be all messed up again. I'm going to have to redo everything. I can't believe you're telling me this. There are no fish here. Jesus says, just trust me. Just trust me. Drop the net. He drops the net down, and the fish literally fish into the net. They jump into the net. It's like hallelujah time. All of us dream of it. If you've ever gone fishing, how many of you gone fishing? How many of you get any catching done? Yeah, people tell me I like to go fishing. I say, I like to go catching. I don't care about fishing. I just want to catch them. Tony Mangrello took me out fishing a while back, all day long on this big boat. Not one stinking fish. I was crying out, Jesus! And he said, shut up. I went, man, Peter was able to, and he said, do you want to go through what Peter went through? And I said, okay, Lord, no problem, I'm done. All night, no fish. He throws the net down. There's fish everywhere. And he's like, hold it. This is miraculous. This does not happen. It does not happen. The next day, Jesus walks by and he says, Peter, you, your brother Andrew, come, follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter drops his nets, leaves his boat, and for the next three and a half years, he walks with Jesus. This is a guy who gave up everything that he had without a second's thought. And he immediately responded to everything Jesus said, and he listened intently. And changes were happening within him. And you see the stories one after another. I think the next one is another water story. Remember, big storm we saw with the kids here, right? Big storm going on. They're scared to death. Suddenly... He sees a ghost walking on the water. The storm slows down. And they recognize it's Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, 
Let me walk on the water with you. Jesus says, come on. Come on up. Peter's like, wow. This is going to be really cool. Gets out of the boat, steps on the water, goes, what was I thinking? <laughs> and he starts to sink instantly. Now, this is an interesting term. It says, he saw the wind. I said, he didn't see any wind. <laughs> what he saw was his fear. And he began to sink, and Jesus is waiting for him to call. And he says, Jesus, help me. Jesus reaches out, grabs him, puts him back in the boat. And he says, Peter, why'd you doubt? Man, you had the most marvelous opportunity anyone's ever made. And you, you spoke before you thought. You need to think before you speak. And those simple words would be words that Peter would have for the rest of his life. Words that he would literally imprint upon his heart. Not because Jesus said it there, because that didn't happen then. He's just going to continue to clarify. But because they're words that changes everything about him. Now, not for now, because he continues on with his process of speaking way before he what? Thinks. Right, exactly. He's speaking before he thinks. Jesus turns to them one day and he says, Who do all the people say that I am? And nobody says anything. And he turns to the disciples and says, Well, who do you say that I am? And nobody says anything except for who? Peter. Peter. Yeah, Peter says, I know who you are. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And Jesus goes, This is marvelous, Peter. You're listening to the Father. You're recognizing what he has said to you. Because what you're saying isn't coming from your own flesh, but it's coming from God himself speaking to you and clarifying that I am the Son of God. And on that confession and that understanding of truth that you've gotten there, I'm going to build my church. In fact, right now I'm going to do something really special. I'm going to give you a new name. Where before you were called Simon, now you're going to be called Peter. Now I said it earlier because I have a hard time ever referring to Simon as Simon. I always call him Peter because that's the only way I think of him as. But here... Jesus changed his name to Peter, and the word Peter means rock. And he says, upon that rock, that foundation that I've shared with you, that you've shared with us, I'm going to build my church. Upon that recognition of strength and stability, upon that understanding of truth, I'm going to build my church, and you're going to be the primary builder. And Peter gets all puffed up like some of us do. And he's thinking, man, I've got it together. I'm doing really good. This is great stuff. And he's thinking highly of himself. And just a little bit later, Jesus turns to me and says, you know, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to have to die. I'm going to give my life for the sins of all mankind. And Peter turns to him and he says, Jesus, you're out of line. Now, before we get all tight about that whole thing, how many times have you told God he's out of line in your life? <laughs> so you're getting the idea. Peter intends well, but he's always speaking before he what? Thinks. Before he thinks. So there it goes again. So he lays us out here, and Jesus turns to him and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. You have in your mind just the well-being of men and mankind and not the directives of God. 
you misunderstand that this isn't about me. This is about God's directive and will. This is about life for everyone. And Peter sits back and goes, man, I shouldn't have said anything. Then you find himself, Jesus brings him along, still working with them. He's mentoring them, teaching them. And he brings them up to the top of a mountain with James and John. And while he's there, it says God begins to speak to him. And he actually sends Moses and Elijah the law and the prophet picture here going on. And they're talking together. And Peter says, Oh, Peter, well, you never learn. Hey, let's build a tabernacle for you and for Moses and for Elijah. And God says, Hold it. This is my son. Do you not understand the difference between Moses and Elijah and my one and only son. And Peter walks off the mountain shaking his head. Doggone it. Oh, I never learn. Am I never going to get this? Am I going to get a handle on this whole thing here? What's going on with my life? And We all struggle with these times. You know, I, I was reading recently about tombstones. I think oftentimes tombstones have those statements of the finality of life, who we are, who we are. And this, this is a real, real Indian tombstone. And I have to read it because I'm going to mess up otherwise. Okay, and it says this. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. He stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> that is great. I'm not going to read you a bunch of the other ones, but, you know. There were some amazing ones. You can pop it up sometime and you go, oh my goodness, what we put on the side of tombstones. So I thought, well, what would we put on the side of different tombstones? And there's another one. Uh, Martin Luther King, what's on his tombstone, do you think? I have a dream. How about free at last? <laughs> That's what it was, baby. Free at last. Mm. Free at last. A declaration of who he was and how he lived and what he lived for. I thought, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he dies, we all know it's going to be on there, right? I'll be back, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife's mom, we, we figured out what her, her tombstone's going to say. I told you I was sick. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was sick, yeah, that was good. Oh, boy. Tombstone's making a statement. So, so Peter's tombstone, I think, clearly would have been this. Think before you speak. Think before you speak. You know what mine is? came very clear after I came to know the Lord. He said, stop lying, start loving. Stop lying, start loving. And that's my tombstone. Because there's a recognition of who I was and who I was destined to be. Who he desired me to be and who I could be. So Peter continues on, and he keeps this thing going on here, and finally he makes the, the horrible mistake. Jesus turns to him, and he's sharing with all the disciples. He said, you know, all of you are going to fall away from me. All of you will, will leave me. And Peter said, Lord, I will never leave you. And he turns to Peter, and he says, Peter, not only are you going to leave me, but you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. That means before the sun rises. Three times. Peter turns to him, and he says, you're thinking, Peter, don't, don't, don't. He says, I will die before I deny you even once. And Jesus is thinking, oh, my goodness. Poor Peter, you're in for a tough one. You're in for a hard one. 
and only a few hours later, Peter will find himself at the last time he sees Jesus alive till after the resurrection, standing at a charcoal fire, warming his hands. And a lady will come to him and say, weren't you with that Jesus? Oh, no, 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 not me, not, not, not me. And then another lady will come to him and say, hold it, I, 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 your voice, you sound, you sound just like you have that same kind of, kind of Galilean accent. You were one of the ones with him. I saw. He said, no, no, it wasn't me. And then a third person will come up. And this time he does his, I am angry. And he says, the third time, cursing. I told you, it's not me. I don't know him. And at that exact moment, the rooster crows. And he looks over and there is Jesus finishing a trial looking at him. And that's the last memory he has because it says he walks away crying and leaves. And in his head, in his head over and over, he can hear Jesus say, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And that's what looks like the final. It's done. It's over. It's finished. I've got no chance anymore. But it doesn't end here. Then we have what I refer to as the change. And Jesus has always does something special. It says Peter has met Jesus. He knows he's back from the dead, but he doesn't know what to do. And so what does he end up doing? He's out fishing. So he's out on the Lake of Galilee. He's fishing all night long. And you know what he catches? Yeah, the same thing I catch every time I go fishing. Nothing. Not a thing. And he's out there and thinking, oh, well, he comes back in and a voice from shore cries out to him and says, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Peter's sinking. And he oh, well, throws his net over and him and John, as the net drops down, see the fish running to get captured. And he says, it's so full they can't lift it up. Peter says, it's Jesus. It's, it's Jesus. And he's so excited that he hops out of the boat and he starts swimming to the shore. <laughs> Amazing picture. Walking out of the side, dripping wet. Jesus is sitting at a fire. And this is what's interesting. There's only two times in the Bible where a charcoal fire is mentioned. The first one is the time when Peter denies Jesus. The second one, is right here. And as he walks up the beach, he smells the charcoal fire. And you know exactly what he's thinking. Oh, crap. <laughs> and he goes over and he sits down. And Jesus begins to talk to him. And it doesn't tell us what the conversation is because it's personal. As all those times when we have those come to Jesus moments are personal. They're really personal. And he speaks to his heart and his soul. And I think he takes that charcoal fire and he cauterizes all those horrible, soul stinking things that took place. And Peter receives forgiveness. And after it's over, or when he thinks it's over, Jesus finishes, and he turns to him and he says these simple words. He says, Peter, 
Do you love me? And Peter is thinking. Interesting enough, John puts in this section the word agape. Do you agape me? Now, remember that Peter and Jesus are both speaking in Aramaic. They're not going to be speaking in Greek. But John's writing this down in Greek to the people, so he's trying to emphasize something. Jesus says, do you agape me, Peter? And Peter responds to him and says, Lord, you know I phileo you. Now, the word phileo is a, is a passionate love for brothers and sisters. It, it's, a, it's this intensity of love, really. Agape, Roberts and a number of other Greek writers usually say, it's, it's more of a thinking love. Agape is, this is what I'm going to do, and that's just the way it is. I'm going to follow through with this and make it happen. Okay, and Jesus turns and says, Peter, do you agape me? Will you follow through with it? You can make it happen what you said. Peter says, you know I am passionate about you, Jesus. I love you deeply. And he's not sure exactly what he's asking. And he says, feed my sheep. And he pauses. Probably looks away and maybe stirs up the fire a little bit. He says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with that intellectual love? That love that does what needs to be done. Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. I, I passionately love you. It's far greater than just an agape love. I passionately love you. I will do any. And you can you see what's beginning to happen to Peter. <laughs> and he's going, um, Lord, you know. And then Jesus turns to him and he says, shepherd my sheep. And then one more time, thinking three denials, aren't we? <laughs> Now we're in three laws. One more time, he looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you flail me? Do you passionately love me? Do you love me with everything you've got within you? Peter is grieved in his spirit. He says, Lord. (laughs) The third time you ask me this, you know what I've done. You know who I am. That's what he says. You know who I am. And you know I love you. And I can see Jesus smiling and he says, Peter, you're right, you do. And one day, you're going to find yourself being taken to a place that you don't want to go, to death itself. But you're going to do what needs to be done. And you'll never deny me again. And he walks away with Peter. And for the next 40 days, the next 40 days, He teaches them and shares with them along with many, many others about what the kingdom of God is all about, what life is all about, what forgiveness is all about, what hope is all about. And that's Easter. That's the change. And so we see in in the book of Acts, Peter's change becomes so dramatic that he himself, after Jesus leaves, is the guy ready to speak the truth. And he stands up and he lays out the ABCs to this crowd of 5,000 people who respond, it says, because there's this sound like fire, wind and fire going on. It's like a Boeing 747 flying across the area. And thousands of people come running up to the area where Peter is standing. There's 120 other people, and they're speaking in different languages. And all the people are hearing them speak about who Jesus is and what he's done in a different language. And they're all wondering what's going on. And Peter steps up and he says, folks, you've got to understand what's been happening these last 40 days. Because you all know about it. And you've been lied to concerning what it is. But let me tell you what it is and how it all 
truly works. And he begins to explain to them how that Jesus died for their sins and that they must admit that they are a sinner. How many of you people here are sinners? The rest of you are liars. Okay. Which is a sin. So. Yes, it is a sin, so it kind of fits, doesn't it? Yeah. Got the whole idea there. And you go, oh, we've got to admit we're sinners. And once we come to that place of admission, then we've got to move to the place we recognize that only Jesus can take care of our sin. That he died on the cross because he's the only one who could have died that would make any difference. That when he died, his blood shed would provide me with forgiveness if I would receive it. That God would look upon that and say, if you respond to that and choose him as Savior and Lord, I will choose you. And make you my child. All who believed and received would become children of God. And that's the cry that Peter gives. Over 5,000 people come in. Amazing response. And then it tells us Jerusalem alone, over the next 20 years, a town of about 250,000, over 100,000 people will become Christians. Over half the town will become Christians in recognition of what's taking place here. And Peter, through his marvelous directive, through this ability to suddenly become a man who we'd never seen before, stabilizes the church and begins to build a a cross-sized hole in all of history that separates A.D. from B.C., the birth of Jesus from the death of Christ, from the beginning day of our Lord. The whole calendar would change. So today we find ourselves looking at 2013, 2013. This is how many days that Jesus was with us. The day he was born, 2,013 years ago. Amazing stuff. So amazing beyond that. At that point in time, one out of every 100,000 people were Christians. One out of 100,000. You know how many are today? One out of six. One out of six. Change the world as a result of the transformation that took place in his life. A change in perspective. A change in understanding. I'm going to watch a clip and Eric's going to share about Eric and Saul. Let's watch the blind clip. Back through and show that it's a it's very cool. We will show it at some point. <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> awesome. Technologically challenged, but we still love Jesus, and thankfully he forgives us for our technical challenges. Um, if Peter is this impulsive guy, Saul of Tarsus was just the opposite. He was disciplined, where Peter was impulsive. Saul was... I mean, we think of Peter as a fisherman. He probably washed out of the young Jewish uh, rabbinical school of teaching and whatnot. He, so he had to go and get a job with his dad. Saul was one of those up-and-coming stars in the Jewish culture. He was raised in a very strongly devout Jewish home. When he was young, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous rabbis in all of history. By the age of 10 years old... Saul, along with the other boys who were in rabbi school, would have had the first five books, the Pentateuch, of the Old Testament memorized by memory. Four years later, by 14, he would have had the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Genesis through Malachi, the Italian prophet, memorized. (laughs) I know, there's probably, Mike, there's probably an Italian prophet. Anyway, Saul was the kind of guy 
who lived his life by the book. He not only knew the Mosaic law, he not only knew the law of God, he lived it every day of his life because to him it was the framework for his relationship with God. If I do these things, if I protect myself from infraction against God's law, then I will have relationship with him. This is how Saul of Tarsus lived his life. And then one day he hears that there's some of these disciples of Jesus Christ who was that guy who was crucified a couple of years before for supposedly, you know, suggesting that he might be the Messiah. And they're not only going around saying that Jesus is, is not actually dead, but he's actually alive, but they're going so far as to suggest that that cross on which Jesus was killed was not an act of, of humiliation and defeat. Far from it. They're suggesting that it was God's greatest gift of grace and that it was a triumph over sin and over death. Now, they're also suggesting that what Jesus did on the cross did what the law could never do, namely to usher somebody into a transformative relationship with God. Now, remember, Paul, known as Saul, but to the Greeks, his name would be translated as Paul. So that's why we get this Saul, Paul, same person. We know him as the Apostle Paul. This is why Paul just comes down hard on these Christ followers, the, the followers of the way, because they are suggesting that the law that Paul lives his life by, the law that has created the framework for his entire worldview is deficient in the one area that it mattered the most, namely that we can somehow have a relationship with God through it. And that, that this failed rabbi who suggested that he was a Messiah, that he somehow, through his sacrifice on a cross, was able to offer that. And to him, that is dangerous. That's more than dangerous. That is a weed that if it takes root, will lead others astray. And so Paul takes it upon himself to stamp this weed out, to uproot it before it can lead any others astray. And if you turn with me to Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at just a couple of passages. If you've got your Bible, just a couple of places. Because to Saul, this gospel message is anathema. This gospel message is heresy. And it must be destroyed because it flies in the face of everything that he, as a good Jewish scholar, he as a rabbi in the making, has learned throughout his entire life. It flies in the face of the entire structure of his Jewish life and his entire worldview. And so we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest of the Jews and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way any there who were followers of this so-called Jesus the Christ whether men or women that he might have permission to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem ostensibly to have them tried and ultimately probably killed themselves for their faith as he neared Damascus on his journey suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Over the next several years, Saul begins to learn about God's true heart. Saul goes through a a massive transformation in his perspective. His perspective on the law, his perspective on this new gospel of grace, the good news that he thought was so dangerous. But also he begins to learn about who God really is. And as he begins to study the scriptures that he's memorized, that he knows by heart, he begins to connect that these same scriptures actually point to Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer of his people. He becomes so utterly convinced of this, so utterly transformed that he goes from being one of the greatest persecutors of the church, one of the greatest persecutors of the gospel of grace, to becoming its single greatest proponent. Turn with me just a couple of of chapters further. Go to chapter 13 of Acts. Because he begins to travel from town to town and city to city sharing this gospel message. And in this one particular town, he he goes into the synagogue because he would often start there and he would share the gospel message with the Jews and the the Gentiles, the non-Jews around there, who who were worshiping Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would share the good news there, but if the people refused to listen, then he would go out to the Gentiles, the people who were not of the Jewish faith, and he would share it with them as well because he realized this message, this good news is for everybody, not just for the Jews. And we see here, just, I'm going to read a couple of verses, but we see the radical transformation in his perspective. In verse 38 of Acts chapter 13, he says this, My friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Every sin a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Later, in in one of his letters, this time to the the churches that meet in Galatia, this region that he was actually preaching to just there, he says this. He goes so far as to suggest that the law was never intended to be some ladder that people could somehow climb up to be found righteous in God's sight. That 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 was never the intention of the law, but rather the law was put in place to show us just how desperately we needed a Savior. He suggests that the law was there to ultimately lead us to Christ. And Paul begins to recognize that all of the things that he had hitherto looked at as his strengths, a Jew raised in a a strong family, trained under Gamaliel, you know, a rabbi keeping all of the scriptures, living perfectly according to the law. All of these things that I considered to be my gain and to make me something, ultimately, I count them as lost compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord and being found in Him because my identity doesn't come from what I do, but from what He has done for me. And that is the only foundation that I can stand upon. You know, I identify a lot with Saul. I, like him, was raised in a devoutly religious home. Mine Christian 
He's Jewish. Um, I think I accepted Jesus when I was three. Not that I had any clue whatsoever what that meant. And I'm still in the process of learning what that means. But growing up, I was really aware of just how much I was not like Saul also in terms of being disciplined. I was more like a Peter. I was, in, I was impulsive. I, I, I was unintentionally um, destructive. But I was still kind-hearted. It sounds a lot like my son Ethan, actually. You know? <laughs> so I guess he gets a lot of that from me. Um, I remember one example. I was camping with my family. And there was a group of family and friends that were sitting around the campfire. And I had a football. And I just thought, this would be a great idea to throw it and somebody will catch it. So I lob this as high as I can right into this group of people. And my memory's a little fuzzy. I don't remember what happened to the football, whether it hit somebody on the head or not. But I remember vividly my dad's response. Kind of shook his head. And he goes, I will be driving you to college. You know, kind of insinuating I would never be entrusted with car keys, never be entrusted with a license. Oh, this is going to be a long, hard training up process for you, my son, and it will not go well. Um, And it's funny, isn't it, the way that our family of origin influences the way we perceive God, the way that we even perceive the world and and other people. Because I remember feeling like I, I knew that my dad loved me. He showed me in countless ways. But through moments like that, though I know that my dad didn't mean this, I interpreted it in my young mind that my dad didn't accept me for who I was. I didn't know if my dad was proud of me, and that I wanted more than anything. And so for much of my life growing up, I did everything I could to earn my dad's approval, to earn his acceptance, and and to make him proud of me. I um, read the same thousand-page biographies of dead people that he read, so we'd have something to talk about. I remember when I was in fifth grade thinking to myself, I need to be mature, I need to be mature. And to that, I interpret it to be stoic and a hard worker, just like my dad. And just as it was with my dad, you, you see how approval to me was based upon performance. And just as it was with my father, it was with God. I viewed my identity with him as based upon my performance. And I remember about five years ago, maybe four and a half, I was doing a devotional on on the, the day that Jesus was baptized and the clouds open up and the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and rests on Jesus and then we hear God's voice saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And I remember thinking to myself, what would God say? me. I had no problem accepting that I was his son, whom he loved. But when I got to that part about his pleasure, I just kind of went, I I started kind of balancing the, what have I done that's good, and what have I done that's kind of screwed up, and, 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 and where do I come out? And it was totally based upon performance. I was falling into the same trap that Paul was, that my identity is based upon how well I can perform. And I somehow have to clean myself up in order to be worthy of God's love, worthy of God's acceptance. And I remember that God taught me, gave me a paradigm shift through the most unexpected teacher, my son Ethan, because he had been born right around that time. And at this point, he couldn't crawl, he couldn't talk, he couldn't catch a ball with me. You know, it's like, what's the point? 
hurry up, grow up. And yet that kid had my heart like nobody in this world had my heart. I would die for him in a heartbeat. There was just, I had never experienced that type of a love for anything. And it wasn't because he earned it. I mean, how could he? All he could do is eat, sleep, and teach me how to change diapers. And yet he had my love completely. And in the same way that he couldn't earn it, there was nothing he could do to lose it. He was always going to be my boy. For better or for worse. And just watching him grow into the child that God had created him to be, watching him grow up in my image, that brought me so much joy. And then God spoke to me in that moment. He said, just like you love your boy, if you love him with that depth, if his identity is that secure in in you, because he's your boy, imagine how I feel towards you. I who am not given to the same frailty and humanity and brokenness. I who am not selfish and self-centered. I love you so much more beyond that. There is nothing, Eric, you have done to earn my love. There's nothing you could do to lose it. You're my son whom I love. And just watching you grow into the man I've created you to be brings me pleasure, brings me joy. And so if there's one thing I hope that you'll get out of Paul, Paul's story and my story, it's this. You are a son. You are a daughter of God created in his image. And there is nothing you have done to earn it. Christ did everything to earn it for you. And just watching you grow into the man and woman he created you to be, that brings him joy. My prayer for you this morning is that you could stop striving to be good enough. Stop trying to clean yourself up. Stop trying to make up for the mistakes of your past. And recognize that when he looks at you, He looks at you through the blood of Jesus Christ and you are to him a child whom he loves. And may you stop striving to earn your identity and simply start resting in it and living out of it. Now some of you are thinking, I can't relate to that. I didn't grow up in a church. I grew up where my father... Just this statement, here comes dad, was going to be a time when you're going to be beaten. You're going to be grabbed out of bed at 2 a.m. in the morning. He's going to stick your head in the toilet and flush it. And sounds funny, but it's not at the time. And you find yourself literally drowning at times, shoving your head in the bathtub. You're scared to take a bath because he'd show up and just get mad at you and hold you down there for a minute. And you wonder if he was going to let you up. And, and you go through this constant beating and abuse until one day you find yourself with a gun pointed at him and saying, if you ever do that again, I'm going to blow your head off right now. And you go, oh, my goodness. And you say, that's kind of my life. That's my back. Well, that's mine. <laughs> so I didn't grow up in a church home, obviously. I grew up with fear and frustration and hate. And I ran away from all that with drugs and crime and got involved in everything you can think of until one day I stood before the judge in 19. 19- 70, and he looked at me and he said, son, I'm going to give you one chance. You can either go to jail or you can go into the service. And I said, I feel very patriotic right now. (laughs) 
began to sing and he, I found myself in the army and going through a process of getting ready to go to the Vietnam War and through a series of lying. I found that if I lied, I could get away with a lot of things. And so I lied a little bit. And, and instead, they put me in Army Security Agency. Yeah. And for about four months, and then they found out I was lying. And so I was back in the regular Army, and I continued the process of selling drugs and getting involved in this. So I was making some pretty good money selling drugs. And uh, I was not a nice person. I was a person that was greatly disliked by people. And I remember one day I was down in a cavern area there in Würzburg, Germany, where I was stationed at the time, and a young lady came up and she shared with me that God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. And I said, and I have a plan for you. And why don't we get together tonight and talk about it? And she just kind of laughed. You know, that was really cute. Not going to happen, dude. Sorry, nice thought, but she continued on with this spiritual law thing and talked about Jesus and how he could touch me, and I just kind of chuckled, and yeah, 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 and she left, and I went about my business, and about four months later, I had gone through the most horrific time of my life, and I recognized who I was, and I hated me and all I'd become, and I didn't know what to do about it, and I took some more drugs and dove through a window of a two-story building and landed on the bottom and beat my head on a brick thing and, and that suddenly something came to me. <laughs> you need help. <laughs> and I said, right then I thought, do you think this Jesus is really something? And after I got out of the hospital, <laughs> I went to a chaplain and I said, I need to understand, who is this Jesus? And he began to explain to me that I was a sinner. And I said, yeah, I get that. And I could have forgiveness of my sin. And I said, whoa, that I don't get. What do you mean? He said, you can be totally forgiven. Jesus died on the cross for you. And that if you simply say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me, he will. I thought, that's a bunch of hokey. There's no way that's going to happen. He said, no, right now. You can pray right now and God will come to you and he'll speak to you. I said, really? So I knelt and I prayed and I said, Lord Jesus, please come into my life and forgive me for my sin. I don't know why you would because who would want this life? And something happened. A teeny little light opened up. Oh, it wasn't gigantic. It was just a little teeny light. And there was this sense of, this is real. And I went, and he said, here's a Bible. I said, okay. He said, Start reading it. So I had one thing I always could do was read. And so I began reading that Bible from cover to cover. And boy, I read it and I read it and I read it and I read about this wonderful God who loved me and this Jesus who died for me. And I began to get it. And I prayed again and I said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I recognize that you died for my sins and that you can cleanse me from sin and you can give me a brand new life. You can change everything. If only you will do it. I said, I choose you to be my Savior. And I asked you to change me and show me how to live life. And at that moment, transformation happened. And I changed. I remember walking out of the room, and this was about two weeks into it, and walking up to the parking lot with this friend who'd been sharing with me about God and who he was and knew him. And it was like a light came out of heaven, and a voice spoke to me, and he said, I... And your father. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> wow. 
this is so cool. And God began to speak to me. I was baptized the next day. And I went through all these series of things. And God began to give me direction into life. And he changed everything I was and everything I thought. He began to give me values and direction. And I, I found myself miraculously going to college in San Jose. To, I could get into a whole series of things. How God did this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And I went to college and learned all these things. And got changed some more. And, and suddenly people actually asked me to teach and to share with them the truth of God's word. And Everything changed. And I was speaking at a little church in Sacramento, and um, as I was sharing there, my wife, who I didn't know was going to be my wife, you know, responded, and, and uh, she said, I just wanted to turn my life over to Christ. I was going to need, I speak on Romans 6. I still remember what I was speaking on there, hun. <laughs> and everything changed, and this wonderful woman came into my life. And both of us had these sordid backgrounds, but God used us and worked in us, and now we have, we've been married for some 35 years. Wow. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and I have a wonderful family and grandchildren and this life that I never dreamed of, that God knew I could have if I would choose. And he has the same thing for each of you today. And some of you are older and you're thinking, I'm too old for that. No, you're not. God wants to transform your life. He wants to free you from your sin and he wants to enable you to be the person that he always intended for you to be if you respond to him. We're going to ask our band to come up. And a few simple things that I want to encourage you now. You have that little connections card that you've got on you and you may want to write on that connections card, I decided today to receive Jesus. Or you may want to, I need you to pray for me that I might understand what it is you're talking about. Whatever it is, you need to write that on that card and then a few minutes after a song or two, Justin will leave the ushers and, and they'll collect that through collecting an offering. You can just stick it in that offering thing. And we'll respond to you as you do it there. But more even than that, some of you need to respond today. You need to simply say, I give up. How many of you are sinners? I need to ask you again. Okay. How many of you have wanted to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Keep your hand up. If you have already received him, put your hand up. Say, I want, I've already received him. Okay, I've already received him. Okay, good. And you can see all these people around you. They've recognized their need. They've responded to him. And I encourage you, do the same. Quit trying to do it on your own. hate to tell you, but you're not going to be able to. But God wants to enable you to do that which you are unable to do. And if you respond to him, he'll begin to do it. Let's pray. Father, today we come to you as our Savior. We come to you, Lord Jesus, as the only one who can not only cleanse us from our sin, but can remove the guilt and change us into a person who can experience your love and your ability to love. Lord, we're tired of lying. We're tired of speaking when we're supposed to shut up. We're tired of doing that which just destroys us. And so we ask today that you might enable us to be what you called us to be. Cleanse us from sin. We choose you. Lord, be Lord of my life. Be Savior of my life. Today, this day, let it begin a new day, this Easter. In your son's name we pray.